Welcome back to the Slavic Connection. This is Samantha. Today I'm interviewing Dr. Julia Mickenberg, who is a professor of American Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Dr. Mickenberg is the author of American Girls in Red Russia, Chasing the Soviet Dream, published by University of Chicago Press in 2017. Her previously authored or edited works include Learning from the Left, Children's Literature, The Cold War, and Radical Politics in the United States, as well as Tales for Little Rebels, a collection of radical children's literature. Today, we talk about her book, American Girls in Red Russia, which is all about American women fleeing to the Soviet Union to chase the opposite of the American dream. Hope you enjoy our conversation. First, just a few words about our programs. It's not uh, typical Texas. You're listening to The Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Mickenberg. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited. So today we are going to talk about your book, American Girls in Red Russia, Chasing the Soviet Dream, which focuses on the history of American women who visited the Soviet Union in its first few decades, as well as the longer history of interactions between Russian and American women on the left. And I want to start out by asking what the impetus for this project was, especially coming from an American studies background. So, yeah, well, I have long been interested in in the U.S. left in its various incarnations. And my first book, which grew out of my dissertation, was on children's literature and the left and looked at like blacklisted writers and other folks who wrote children's books, particularly during the McCarthy era when other avenues were closed to them kind of curious contradiction that 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 they could be allowed to write for children when there was so much monitoring of culture. One of the ways that I researched that book was by reading, you know, whole runs of left-wing American periodicals like the New Masses or the Daily Worker and these other periodicals. And I found that the Soviet Union was kind of everywhere. But if you look at scholarship on the left that is at all sympathetic to the those historical actors, they say that the Soviet Union wasn't very significant for obvious reasons, because if you want to give a sympathetic portrait of these people, you want to prove that they're not so-called Stalinists, that they weren't tools of the Soviet Union, because this is the kind of thorn in the side of the history of the American left to the extent that it was beholden to Russia. So I keep describing this project or parts of it as kind of an itch that I couldn't help um, scratching. So I had, I, and I came, I was interested in, in sort of different ways of coming at this. I was thinking of even like early on, as I was thinking about the project, I was thinking of like American character building or American education and how children were kind of learning about the Soviet Union. But the way that I came directly to this project was almost by accident. I had a small grant and I was looking at pro-Soviet children's literature and Ruth Kennel, who you mentioned, I had come across her books uh, for children. They were the first positive depictions of the Soviet Union depicted in children's literature in the U.S. The first one was published in 1931. And she, I had seen her collection of papers at the University of Oregon, went back and looked. And just by coincidence, I mentioned to a scholar of the American left, Alan Wald, in an email that I was at this archive looking at her papers. And he said... You know, Theodore Dreiser, the American writer, did a sketch of Ruth Kennel in his gallery of women, which is a collection of these semi-fictionalized sketches. So I went and looked in the, I was still in Oregon, I looked in their library, and it took me a little while because it didn't use a real name, but it was pretty quickly clear that Ernita was, was Ruth Kennel. And she had lived in this colony in Siberia. And so even though I came in interested in the children's literature, I've, I've given talks on her children's books. I've never published. Is that true? I don't know. I'll have to think about it. But I started looking at the stuff about her in this colony in Siberia, and I was completely sucked in, came back and spent several weeks just looking at those papers. And then I was having a conversation with my with several people, but my editor at Oxford Susan Ferber, um, who I'd worked with on my first book, and then, you know, some other scholars who've looked at like the United States and the Soviet Union. And there's really almost nothing written about this gender dimension about women. And sort of as with my first book, you start with one person 
she kind of remained, I think, the center of the book. People keep gravitating to her. And I think my fascination with her kind of comes through. But she was the origin. But I even just looking at who she was corresponding, corresponding with, it was clear that she wasn't the only person, that this was a larger story. I, I still have this desire. Her uh, memoir, her unpublished memoir is totally fascinating. And I'm still toying with the idea of trying to, to publish her memoir and, you know, with an introduction to that. And I'm still fascinated with her, but she, she was the sort of origin. Sorry for the long origin, the long story. <laughs> I don't know if you, you can edit as much as you want. <laughs> And maybe before we get into the stories of women like Ruth Kennel, kind of struck by your invocation of Lauren Berlant in your introduction of Lauren Berlant's Cruel Optimism, which is in essence an affective relationship towards this imagined future that presents something better than the present, even as that futuristic look kind of colonizes the present and puts blinders on it, which I think is a really great framing mechanism for the experiences of many of the women in this book. And you write, American women were drawn to the Soviet Union because it embodied a promise of the good life and explicitly included women's emancipation in that promise. The very conditions of modernity under capitalism or communism make the feeling of wholeness ever fleeting. So with regard to cruel optimism, what is it about that Soviet future that attracted American women to the early Soviet Union? And how does the cruel part of that cruel optimism come into play? Well, what a great question. And then I actually, I thought of something else about the the research that I, that I would love to talk about. But yeah, I, I guess in concert with, with Lauren Berlant's idea of cruel optimism, I was also thinking about Susan Buck Morse's book. I have to look back on the title, but it compares this sort of utopia of industrial modernity in its capitalist and communist um, ideas and looking at the the parallels between the kind of the dream of the United States under capitalism and the the Soviet Union under communism. And I think one of the other things was that I I thought it was important to go back prior to the Russian revolution of 19, well, the revolutions of 1917, the Bolshevik revolution, the prior Menshevik rule, or however you want to define the February revolution, and, and look at this longer revolutionary ethos. And I found that in women's magazines, writings by women, writing about women, there was this long history of interest in Russia. So even going back to, you know, as early as like the 1860s, 1880s, you had Russian women, many of them from noble backgrounds who were so distraught at the injustice of the czarist czarist regime that they were sort of forgoing their privilege and becoming involved in revolutionary movements and showing a level of bravery and civic engagement that was very inspirational to American women who, you know, were just beginning to get the kind of, in many ways, the Russian women were kind of ahead in sort of education and intellectual advancement and civic engagement and so when, and mo- almost all of, there were many, com- as I'm sure you know, there were comp- many competing revolutionary movements, but in almost all of them, it was just assumed that, that gender equality would be part of the, part of the plan. And in fact, the Bolsheviks, apart from Alexandra Kolontai, were not even particularly feminist, but they wanted to have everybody's labor you know, available for the, for the revolution. And after the, the first February revolution, there was some debate about women, whether women we would get the vote, but the women demanded it. That first revolution actually took place on international women's day. The cruel optimism was, was looking to elsewhere, looking to Russia, then looking to the Soviet union, seeing the fact that first of all, Women were getting got the vote there before they got in the United States. But much beyond that, you know, divorce was easy and simple. Abortions were made legal and free when you couldn't even talk about birth control in the United States. You couldn't send information about birth control through the through the mail. Marriage was simple, but like women didn't even necessarily take their husband's name. Sometimes the the male would take the the wife's name. And very early on, all of these mechanisms were created to make it more possible for women to work so that they there were nurseries created in factories and there were 
laundry, you know, public laundries and public dining halls. The cruel part of this optimism is that it was partly because of sexism and partly because of plain old material disadvantages that the portrait of what it might be was never realized in the Soviet Union. And sexism itself was never eradicated. And that's totally apart from all the kind of repression and violence underlying the Soviet regime. So there were many layers of, I would say, both the optimism and the cruelness of the of the optimism. But yeah, I was really drawn to this utopian dimension and also to this idea that people were uncomfortable remembering it, you know, that there was there really seemed to be this lacuna in the in the history the other thing I'll say about the research process was that it was a um, it was a 10 year process of researching it. I, I had that aha moment in the University of Archive in the spring of 2005 and the book was published in 2017. So it was a, it was a huge amount of research in dozens of archives. <laughs> And these women that went to the Soviet Union in the 1920s, but also the 1930s and later, maybe closer to the early waves of American visits, what kind of class, professional or social backgrounds were a lot of these women from or even geographic areas in the United States? Was it kind of discernible similarities or very diverse? That's a great question, too. You know, certainly more, especially in the early period, it was going to be more educated, professional women what people don't, I think, call or remember because we look through, you know, this history through the lens of the Cold War is how widespread the excitement in the United States was about the Soviet Union among really certainly not just radicals, but most liberals. So like John Dewey wrote this, you know, incredibly excited discussion about American education, but basically in any field, whether you were a, an architect or a fashion designer or a playwright or a poet or a musician, you wanted to see what they were doing in the Soviet Union. It didn't mean you were a communist, but it was this exciting look into like what could be done when you take the profit motive out of cultural production. So there were women educators who were going to the Soviet Union. So again, of a professional class, there were librarians, social workers, a big contingent that I talk about is settlement house workers. So the settlement houses were created around the turn of the century to help. Um, it was modeled on, on a British model, but you had people like Jane Addams and um, the Henry Street Settlement. So Lillian Wald, um, nurse and social worker, and you had medical professionals going. Um, so people went for different reasons. And I talk about that, you know, Elizabeth Hawes, fashion designer later was interested in fashions that would be created in for factories or again, without, with attention to utility. Some people went to see, you know, Ruth Kennel went to see how could, what would it be like to live communally? And Lennon himself talked about getting rid of domestic drudgery. So what would it be like to live collectively and share earnings and eat in a communal dining hall? Some people went out of a sense of adventure. You know, I compare it to people going to Everybody in high school in the United States, at least when I was in high school, studied the lost generation and going to France and Paris in the 1920s. And that was kind of, a you know, to escape capitalism or escape the kind of business world or whatever, the culturelessness of the United States. But some of those same people went to the Soviet Union and that was a different kind of a gesture because that was not just escape. It was let's take part in at least or witness this attempt to build something new. And so it was very often very adventurous people. There were also, I mean, there's a complicated story about when you talk about the class dimension, particularly because in the um, starting in um, with the first five-year plan, 1928, but really once the depression takes hold in the United States, you know, in the 1930s, you had many working class people who had very little interest in communism or the Soviet experience. They went because there were jobs there. And it was mostly men going to work in, you know, automobile factories. Whole contingents came from Detroit who had lost their jobs, Ford factories. But there were women who, you know, went along as, as wives or even as industrial workers. But 
And then I also, I actually also write about people who were, I, I mean, that's another story, the communist party part, but there were a variety of, of classes of people going, but just to have the means to get there, if you weren't going for a job would, would presume a certain kind of class status. And when a lot of these women got here, particularly the ones that left written memoirs or journalistic accounts, which make for a convenient archive, what did they do? And did they visit a particular city or particular tours or attractions that were considered appealing both to them, but also appealing for the Soviet Union to show off? Yeah, that's a great question. So I was interested in those published accounts, but part of the reason that this took so much archival research is that even if people did publish accounts, I was also really interested in unpublished accounts. So letters, diaries, I wanted to try to figure out what people really thought. And especially if that was different from what they published, you know, the stories that they told. And, and in many, even most cases, yes, it was different. And, you know, and that comes back to this kind of cruel optimism or this kind of desire to create that system. It also depended what the context of your going was. So the Society for the Vox, which stands for All Union Society for Cultural Relations with Foreign Countries, that was created in 1925 to promote cultural context. So one of the other stories I was trying to figure out was, you know, early on, it was actually difficult to get into Russia after the revolution. You had to go with certain organizations, many of them tied to the Communist Party. But as of 1925, the Soviet Union starts actually promoting tourism. So my book tended to concentrate on people who stayed for longer periods of time. There was a it was sort of a running joke that people would come to the Soviet Union for three books and write a book about it after, you know, call themselves an expert after being there for three weeks. The people who did go with Vox tended to all see the same things. And there have been, you know, books written about the ways that the Soviets carefully curated visits for foreigners. So you would be taken to a model factory and a model nursery and a model this and that and sort of always see the best of what the Soviet Union had to offer. And it wasn't that surprising that those were mostly these kind of thrilled accounts, even on even privately, even in diaries and in letters home. And so that's why I really wanted to look at people who were there for extended stays, who saw the good and the bad and made decisions sometimes to just publicly write about the good and trying to figure out why they would want to do that. And on the topic of people who stayed, one of the focuses of your book, which you've mentioned, is Ruth Kennel. And she participated in the Kuzbus colony in Siberia. And she wrote that she and her colonists were, quote, building here not a new Atlantis, but a new Pennsylvania. So you already kind of have this utopic vision in this colony. Could you talk a little bit about how the colony arose and what Ruth Kennel's experience in the colony was? Yeah, this was it was just a whole fascinating this the idea, the very idea of a utopian colony in Siberia was like, what? It didn't make any sense, but it was founded by two wobblies or members of the industrial workers of the world from the U.S. and then a, a communist, uh, uh, Sybil Rutgers, who was Dutch and, you know, legendary. Big Bill Haywood was one of the, he's this kind of legendary wobbly with like one, one eye and a wooden leg, I think. So they were excited about the revolution and wanted to find a way to bring American know-how or the know-how of the industrialized West to um, the Soviet Union. So they proposed this mining and industrial enterprise in Siberia to Lenin. And this colony was founded in 1922. It was one of something like 40 foreign colonies or communes, I guess they were called, in the Soviet Union. And about 26 of those, I'm going to have my numbers not exactly right, maybe you can correct this, <laughs> were, were dominated by Americans. And the Kuzbis colony was the most famous of them. And it got a lot of press, <laughs> mostly negative, but, but it attracted a lot of attention. And also the rhetoric of these wobblies in their newsletters, there's actually a, um, you can find some of these um, online. There was a Library of Congress, Joint Library of Congress and a Russian Library effort to document some of the Kuzbis stuff. The rhetoric is really over the top, idealistic, very intriguing. And, but I discovered it through um, Ruth Epperson Kennel, who turned out to be kind of the main chronicler 
she went, I think with the third or fourth group, she went in, um, 1922. So I guess it was officially founded in 21. And she went, was one of the first few groups that went and she published an article in the nation, this piece that you're referring to a new Pennsylvania. And I, I remember one of the earliest talks I gave about this, it was at an American studies association meeting. And I started thinking about all the connotations of Pennsylvania. Cause when they were talking about the new Pennsylvania, they were talking about mining and you think about the the industrial steel mining in in Pennsylvania. It's also a home of, you know, very many famous strikes. But there's also the kind of city of brotherly love in Philadelphia. So there's these sort of multiple meanings of, you know, of of a new Pennsylvania, but definitely associating with these American traditions. And you see that rhetoric both in the Kuzbis colony and another project that I talk about a little bit, which was called Russian Reconstruction Farms, which was, again, another um, American-run enterprise, but agricultural an agricultural commune rather than industrial. So Hennel, she published a series of articles in The Nation, but she also kept wrote this memoir, which she wound up, she never did publish it because... She went over there with her husband, Frank. They left their 18-month-old son with Frank's mother back in California. And really not too long after getting there, uh, Ruth fell in love with somebody else. There were a lot of people who went who were, you know, either some of them Russian-born, some of them children of Russian immigrants. And for Jews, the man that she met was Jewish. For Jews who had been uh, strongly victims of discrimination under the czarist regime, many people thought things would dramatically change under the new regime. That's another whole complex story. But you had a lot of Jews going back to Russia and some planning to, to stay there. The man that she met wasn't somebody who was trying to stay, Sam Shipman, but he was an engineer and and they fell in love. and. Coincidentally, at the same time, I don't think she had acted on her affections, but there was a big dispute between the Wobblies, who are kind of idealistic, pie in the sky, almost closer to anarchists, and the communists. And the, and the Wobblies were um, much more critical of Soviet leadership and Soviet orders. So part of the whole draw for people like Kennel, but particularly for the Wobblies, was living without you know, one big union without wage, not working for wages, sharing everything communally. And so when the new economic policy was put in place and they introduced some elements of capitalism, they suddenly, there was one guy making a joke of it who said, um, workers of the world unite and then be divided into 17 categories. So suddenly these, these hierarchies reminiscent of capitalism were introduced and the Wobblies were saying, forget it. We don't want to work. We don't want to be part of the system. And the communists were saying, look, we do what we have to do. We got to make the system work, however, whatever it takes. And the conflict got so big that many of the Wobblies left, including Frank, Ruth's husband. And she claimed that she just wanted to fulfill her two-year contract that they had signed. But really, she just wanted to stick around because she'd fallen in love with this other guy. For her, she had this, you know, sexual awakening that accompanied her political awakening. She had felt like, I couldn't believe the stuff I was finding in her letters. Like she was saying, you know, you know, she wrote a letter to her brother where she was saying, you know how cold and uninterested in sex I always was. And I always thought what people said about the grand passion was exaggerated, but it's all true. Like she just, you know, had this whole awakening. And all these stories about these romantic adventures they're having, you know, in Siberia, all of that is was wrapped up together with this with this feeling of being part of a new political experiment. But what this meant was that so much of the detail in her in her memoir, which was very, um, very thinly fictionalized, she ultimately actually, after um, many years and all sorts of things happening, including involvement with the writer Theodore Dreiser, she wound up going back to her husband after, you know, nearly eight years. And because of that, she never tried to publish the memoir as far as I can understand it. So, but her accounts are some of the, the, there were other people writing, I found other accounts, but hers were really some of the richest. You know, I also found in, you know, the papers of the Communist Party of the United States, I found some stuff in Russia, in Moscow, 
there, there's a lot of documentation about this colony kind of all over the place, but, but for a personal side, hers are some of the richest. And these women who went to Russia, but also other Americans in general, who stayed for longer periods of time, I'm particularly interested by language. So many of them wrote for English language publications or radio services. But could you find in your iCarvel research evidence of them learning Russian and integrating to some degree? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, certainly Anna Louise Strong, who was there the longest, became very proficient in Russian. Kennel became, you know, reasonably proficient in Russian to be able to work there as a journalist. You as a decent journalist, (laughs) um, you kind of had to be. And this was another reason to be looking at people who stayed longer, who made that effort. Jesse Lloyd, O'Connor, most of the people who stayed for extended periods, Millie Bennett, they they would have learned Russian. And then there were examples of, you know, I'm not sure, um, you know, I talk about this group of African-Americans who went, some of them stayed on Soviet Union. There are all sorts of stories to be to be told from that. Certainly the people who stayed on learned Russian I'm not sure the degree to which figures like Langston Hughes or Dorothy West, but uh, Russian is a really difficult language to learn. So even the people who stayed there for a year, I don't know how many of them would have ever considered themselves fluent, but I'm sure the people who stayed for extended periods were. And that was also kind of the, you know, it was kind of a litmus test of how serious are you about this? Are you trying to learn Russian or are you, how can you expect to be really getting firsthand information if you're relying on a translator. So yeah, I think that's a really important question. (laughs) Yeah. And you actually mentioned that the German writer, Walter Benjamin went to Russia and was somewhat disillusioned, but I, I, I believe I also read he was just frustrated with Russian. He couldn't learn it. So one of the reasons he, he packed up and went home. He was in love with someone there. I think it was the uh, theater sats, the, the, the director of the children's theater he was in love with her. And so there was a sort of unrequited. There, it's surprising how many of those, how much of this, you know, is this very personal thing or how, you know, we talk from the women's liberation of the 60s and 70s that the personal is political. But I don't think they they might have articulated the sentiment, but I think personal is the political has always been personal. And so, yeah, I think maybe he was frustrated with the language, but I think he was also frustrated in love. And and that was part of his story. His um, Russian diaries are really fascinating to read, though. And so when these women in particular, you do dedicate a whole chapter to this troupe of African-Americans who came to film a film that never actually ended up getting finished or made at all. <laughs> and I'm wondering what the stereotype was for this kind of revolutionary-esque American woman who came really to be a professional in Moscow and work for journalists, organizations, or for these Black Americans that visited, what kind of Russian imaginary existed? Like, how did they imagine these Americans coming, if, if you found that in your research? Well, so the, the, the story of African-Americans is, is especially interesting First of all, the kind of official Soviet line on race and racism is that it's outlawed, but it's still Francine Hirsch is really one of the great scholars who's worked on, you know, looking at Soviet national minorities and the extent to which policies were or were not, in fact, liberating. But in the United States, African-Americans in certain quarters on the left were hearing stories about the Soviet Union having abolished racism. And in fact, the Communist Party from early on, 1922, started giving a special position to the African-Americans in the United States as the kind of sort of ultimate proletariat in the United States. They started articulating a thesis that the Black Belt was a nation within a nation and a focus of communist efforts should be on fighting Jim Crow and racism at a time when, you know, this is really early, way ahead of the civil rights movement. So you can see that there would be an appeal for African-Americans. So in 1932, the Scottsboro case, the Communist Party made that case a cause celeb. That was a um, an incident in which nine African-American youths were falsely accused of raping two white women. And it became an international cause celeb. So all over the world, there were demonstrations, including in the Soviet Union, because of all the attention that was drawn to these nine, you know, fairly uneducated, poor 
African-American men, you know, under 18, there was a lot of interest within the Soviet Union in in African-Americans, but their view of African-Americans was really limited and problematic and kind of conformed to sort of Soviet conceptions of colonized people. So Africans and African-Americans were usually lumped together, even though their circumstances were very, very different. And and even the school, um, the Marxist training school, African-Americans were sent to a different school than other than white Americans. So white Americans who would go to who were communists and wanted training would go to the Lenin school. But African-Americans would go to KUTV, I think it was, which were people from the Eastern, the Eastern world. Communist University of the Toilers of the East. But they did kind of weirdly separate that there's a European Russian communism and then there's a global. Yeah, yeah, and they sort of assumed that all African-Americans were sort of dark skin, uneducated, poor, etc. So when Louise Thompson, who becomes Louise Thompson Patterson, was recruited by James Ford, who was African-American high up figure in the Communist Party to get together a troop of Black actors to make this film about American race relations. First of all, everyone's very excited because it's you couldn't have a, you know a real honest look about American race relations being produced um, with a big budget in the United States. And um, but so she recruited. Um, she was a kind of sort of connected to the Harlem Renaissance um, in the United States. The the idea was that. First of all, she they wanted actors, but she couldn't find enough actual professional actors. So she wound up just mostly recruiting professionals because they had to pay their way over. They were going to have everything covered once they got there. But, you know, most working class African-Americans didn't have money to, to pay their way over to the Soviet Union. So she got a group of, you know, there was one or two, I guess, one professional actor. Some people had some acting performance experience. But others were, you know, the writer Langston Hughes, Dorothy West, there was lawyer. And many of these professionals were also um, light skinned. And so when when they got to the Soviet Union, there was like, wait, you're not what African-Americans look like or are supposed to act like or be like. And there were all these assumptions that they would all know how to sing and they would all know how to dance. And again, these very stereotypical kinds of assumptions about African-Americans you know, which we can call racism, but it was, it was, it was more of a, I don't even know how to describe it. There was certainly problematic and a misperception, but, but people who had been, you know, undergoing intense discrimination and certainly if they'd come from the South or had been in the South, not just discrimination, but segregation were suddenly sort of like the stars wherever they went. So the African-Americans who came to the Soviet Union for the most part had, well, people who stayed long-term didn't necessarily, but the people who came um, with this film had an awesome time. They were, they were, you know, treated like movie stars. You know, people had written about this film that was never made, but I started really thinking in terms of um, performance. What did it mean that they went as performers? And then even though the film wasn't made, I kind of thought of them as sort of continuing to perform their blackness for this um, the Soviet audience, which was seeing them as a kind of spectacle. So maybe with more admiration, but not necessarily really seeing them for the human beings who they were. And so the film was never made, first of all, but a film that was made later after they left was Circus, which is quite a famous Russian film in the way that they try to basically an anti-racist Russian film showing how how horrible the Jim Crow South was, uh, which is, of course, true. They do take this figure of this child, particularly this black child who's hidden the entire movie, and they recast the figure of this white woman who is the, the mother of a black child. And I think that this figure of the child is something that you focus on, particularly maybe the Russian child or the Soviet child early on in the Soviet Union when they were going through the Civil War and then famines later. But I was wondering if you could expand a little bit about this really pathos-ridden figure of the child and how it motivated um, a lot of American women to work towards the Soviet future or how they 
yeah. kind of weaponized this figure. So to start, I mean, that's kind of, so that's 1936. And that little boy is actually the son of one of the people who went with that group of African-American professionals. And he stayed there. He, he grew up in the, so I mean, his father stayed there. And then that little boy grew up in this, in the Soviet Union. And obviously, I think Russian was his first language. <laughs> but if we talk about the figure of the child, yeah, I, I was looking at different ways that people got into the Soviet Union. And one of my chapters looked at women who went as relief workers, because especially early on, that going the only way to get in was as a relief worker or one of the only ways, especially if you weren't an official communist. Um, and I looked at the American Friends Service Committee, which is the still is the service arm of the, the Society of Friends or the Quakers. Long story, those were the only women allowed on the ground in the in the relief efforts because they had already, I guess, simply because they had already been in there. But I talked about the sort of related but sometimes competing tropes of the, the child saver and the child savior. Uh, so you had uh, these women coming in in a tradition of American child saving that, you know, it doesn't matter who these people are. You know, we all children should be protected. There was a wonderful quote by George Bernard Shaw. I found when someone had criticized his feeding of enemy children during relief during World War One, and he said, I have no enemies under seven. And so this becomes an acceptable way for middle class women, some of whom are or would become communists to get into Russia. The levels of starvation during the famine were shocking the world. And there was this idea, you know, Helen Keller, you know, many famous figures were 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 so distraught because you know, the child represents the future and the part of the whole appeal of this, you know, what Dewey calls their, I think it's Dewey, the Soviet experiment is like this possible alternative future. And so all this hope is in, and anxiety is invested in children. So if you have children starving, this is the child savers want to come in and, and do something to contribute to socialism. But I also talk about the child savior because the Part of this is in Soviet propaganda, but you see American writers again and again talking about these rosy-cheeked, I don't know how many times I read rosy-cheeked children who are learning cooperatively. There was a lot of attention to educational experimentation in the Soviet Union, but, you know, in cooperative childcare and really this generation raised on um, socialism and the all the kind of power, you know, self-government of children in schools and how they could, from a young age, become these ideal citizens raised without the competitive ethos of capitalism. So there was fascination in the possibility of these children, but also real sort of effort to rescue children who were suffering from the you know wars and famine and everything else so that you could create this child savior figure. Yeah, and I found it personally really fascinating. It reminded me of Lee Edelman, who's actually providing a critique of the child as this kind yeah. of symbol of a reproductive futurism. I found it really unique, this kind of attention towards these symbols of the future in which the child was really central. And I, I want to kind of move towards these American women's lives after they visited the Soviet Union or after they moved back, after living there for a period of time. What did they do with their experiences in the Soviet Union? Did they continue, some of them, to be very engaged in these leftist politics? Or how did they have to describe or recast these experiences as time went on, especially with regards to Stalinism? Yeah, I mean, it's so complicated. Kennel, uh, you know, was the figure I think I followed the whole way and the most. And she actually went back and forth, but mostly, mostly pro. She wrote these critical with her friend, Millie Bennett. She wrote some critical pieces about the Soviet Union. She lost, she was working after she left the Kuzmitz colony. She was working in the Comintern Library in Moscow and then got asked to be Theodor Dreiser's private tour guide during his his Russian tour in 1927 to 28. And then she was fired from her job when she came back, supposedly didn't have enough permission. She was angry about this. She felt she had been so loyal. So she was she became more critical. But then having not much else to do, I, I don't know, complex story again. I think she might have been pregnant. It's hard to even say whose child it was. I think it was Frank's child. She'd gone back to Frank. She went back to the Soviet Union again in 1932. This is the time of the famine or another famine. And times were very difficult. She had a much different 
experience and kind of depressing experience when she was there. And yet, so she she had left the Soviet Union in 1928 after being there for six years, was home for a while, semi-reconciling with Frank, and went back there partly because she had fallen in love with this, an American journalist working in Russia, Junius Wood. She had quite a few different love affairs. But she had a very difficult experience, partly because she was trying to get a um, abortion in Russia and was not able to get it. She actually um, wrote a play about this that was briefly performed on Broadway. I was managed to read the script of it. But she wound up coming back, having the child. Frank raised the child as his own. They got back together. And she remained pro-Soviet really for the rest of her life after this brief interlude of being critical and, and started writing these children's books. She published four or five, but then also managed to write in like Methodist periodicals. Frank was a Methodist minister, these pro-Soviet children's stories, and did that through the late 40s. There was still a market for it, but with the Cold War, you don't see any more of that literature. But she, in her writings, and I found correspondence for the rest of her life with a woman that she met, May O'Callaghan, who's Irish, they corresponded and they both remained pro-Soviet for the rest of their lives. Same with Jessica Smith. Anna Louise Strong was actually arrested. She was probably the loyalist of the bunch, the most uncritical, and she was arrested in 1949 in the Soviet Union. I would say unjustly arrested. And then because of that, came back and then was like a pariah by people in the, you know, two people in the communist left. So she felt really embittered and isolated and wound up moving to China. Part of the reason that she was arrested was that she was interested in China and naively thought, oh, they're communists, like that's fine. But there was this competition between the Soviet Union and China. And so she she sort of was sort of nowhere land in the end. I don't think she remained exactly pro-Soviet, but she she felt really, for good reason, betrayed by the Soviet Union and then other people were somewhere in between. I mean, some people who, the, there's famous memoir, Mary Leader, called My My Life in Stalinist Russia or something like that. She, she just uh, wound up there almost by accident because her parents were Jews looking to go to this Birabijan, which was sort of a pre-Israel Jewish colony being established in the Soviet Union. Major disappointment. She was never like super gaga pro-Soviet, but her passport, she went, she wanted to get away from this, you know, colony in the mud and went to Moscow, tried to get a job. And her father was supposed to mail her passport and she didn't get the passport. It was supposedly lost. And for her to get a job, they said, well, you can become a Soviet citizen. She said, okay. And then that was it. She was stuck there till 1963. I wouldn't say that she had been anti-Soviet in the beginning, but she had a pretty horrifying experience, partly in, yeah, in, you know, living through the great terror and, and everything else. So especially if you were there through the late 1930s, I think it was impossible to maintain that level of utopian optimism about the Soviet Union. <laughs> Now, on the topic of this kind of really souring on the Soviet Union, and particularly the kind of forced bordering of your either pro-Soviet or pro-American in the Cold War, that really made having any sort of leftist politics problematic, which you mentioned at the beginning of the episode. Do you think that the kind of failure, to use a word very broadly, of that early revolutionary Russia as it kind of careened into the purges and Stalinism do you think that contributed to the kind of covering up of this really revolutionary anti-fascist devotion on the part of these women and many Americans at the time? Well, absolutely. I mean, once, you know, Stalin's re the revelations in 1956 by Khrushchev of everything that was happening under Stalin was sort of both shocking and not shocking. It was not shocking to people who had been saying all along, the anti-Stalinists who'd been saying all along, this is a violent, repressive, totalitarian system. But but to to devotees to hear Khrushchev himself saying all the horrors that had been committed under under Stalin was this kind of moment of reckoning. And arguably, you know, the Communist Party as an entity, it continued to exist. And there were even people saying like, OK, now we've got this out in the air. We can we can begin again. But 
so many people left the Communist Party in 1956. If they hadn't already let, you know, people left when the Soviet Union and Germany got into an alliance in 1939, some people found a way of explaining it away. But, you know, by 1956, a lot of people were like, okay, now I'm just fed up with this. What's so complicated, Alan Wald, like I said, who's been a kind of mentor to me and an interesting interlocutor, he has studied the, um, one of his earliest books was The New York Intellectuals, and he was looking at anti-Stalinists and how so many of them turned into neoconservatives in the 70s. So, like, it was very difficult to tread. There were only a few people who managed to really successfully, I mean, there were a few independent socialists. Irving Howe is probably one of the most famous but managed to figure out how to tread the line of like maintaining a radicalism that was still clear-eyed about the Soviet Union. But there was the Cold War did, you know, set many people into, into that kind of dichotomous thinking. And it also it made it not just dangerous, you know, to be pro-Soviet because you could lose your job with McCarthyism. But even after that, it was like an, it was sort of shameful and embarrassing. How could you be so stupid? Let's not talk about this story. And so that's like that's why I said that it was sort of like the sympathetic portraits that I read of people who had been in the communist left or even not even the communist left, even in the kind of popular front or kind of anti-anti-communists, you know, there are all these different configurations, progressives in quotes, always denies how how significant the Soviet Union was in these people's lives. Because if you if you did acknowledge that it was significant, it was almost as a way of dismissing that person as a intelligent person. Yeah. And even in our situated very much in our present moment, Antifa as a shorthand word for anti-fascism has become such a controversial dirty word. And I think that what you do in the book is show that actually a lot of Americans and particularly American women were really devoted to this. Yeah. I mean, uh, Chris uh, Viles, who's going to be joining us in American studies as a new colleague, has is really the person looking at the history of American anti-fascism. And that, you know, it's a really important, yeah, certainly in drawing those connections and it, it is complicated to say if many of the anti-fascists were pro-Soviet, even if some of them were pro-Soviet, does that mean that anti-fascism as a movement was invalid? I mean, absolutely not. But it also means that people are complex human beings who are making mistakes and stumbling along in, ter- in terms of trying, you know, and I to think that there's ever a kind of clear and obvious solution to complex social problems is a is a very tempting kind of an illusion and it's Jenny Holzer is a visual artist who does these aphorisms I guess she has these things on benches and in uh in Minneapolis in the in a sculpture garden this contemporary art museum and the statement she has is abusive power comes as no surprise which that's just always stuck in my head and to to think that anybody is going to is going to be a perfect leader. Any society is going to be the perfect society. Um, you know, the loss of stature of the United States in the world, in some ways, I think the United States for many years was this kind of ideal society that people were looking to in, in many parts of the world. We could get into a long conversation about where, where we are now and, you know, how we got to this place. But it is an interesting kind of parallel comparison of this kind of disenchantment. Maybe suffice to say that Lauren Berlant's cool optimism was originally in an American contemporary context. As closing, I guess, what are your thoughts on this project kind of a few years out, many years out from the beginning of the project? What's sticking with you? What are you still working on? One thing that I'm working on sort of much longer than I wish I was, but I can't seem to quite get Ruth Kennell out of my head. So I've been working on um, an article about her correspondence with Theodore Dreiser. That portrait that I started with, Ernita, he sent to her and asked for her permission to publish. And they went back and forth about whether he could publish it for about a year. And she, by that time, was starting to reconcile with her husband, Frank, and his portrait really exposed the story and I think probably inspired her to write her own memoir because she didn't like his version. 
And and I think she was also kind of intrigued by the idea of becoming a sort of historical figure, having a great novelist. He was one of the most famous novelists of the time. Having him write her story, she ultimately did not give him published permission to publish, but he went ahead and published. I think hoping that she'd change her mind again. So I, I've been writing a, a piece tracking their、um, relationship. So I continue to be interested in in Kennel from that piece, and I I also I'm struck by you know. Every few months, somebody will contact me with something related to the book.、Uh, historian McGill is writing about another woman in Russia, a biography of her, and a Dutch scholar contacted me because he's writing about the Kuzbis colony. So, I'm not saying I necessarily started something, but there's been a lot of interest in Kemerovo in that town that I read about. So, seeing how it continues to ripple has been really interesting. Now, three years out. But I'm, I'm working on another project that has just—I mean, it's about a woman who was on the left, but not really related to this at all. I confess, I like I said, this was like an itch that I that I、um, was trying to scratch, and I I had studied Russian as an undergrad, and I audited classes. Yeah, I guess for four years, and I just like I said, I had got good enough at Russian that I could, you know, read a page with a dictionary in an hour. But that's not really <laughs> a level of competency that that encouraged me to do another, you know, focused on Russia project. But I'm somebody who who likes learning about stuff that I don't know about. So it, it would have been easier, you know, if if in all my books I I guess continued along. Grounds that I'd already set up, but I'm—I kind of keep wanting to learn new stuff. Well, I'm really excited to see what other kind of global connections the network you've put into place has. I, I think it's really exciting the kind of connections between Russian and American and these intertwined histories. I really enjoyed having you on the podcast. Thank you so much for this fantastic conversation today. Well, thank you so much, and clearly, we're a really attentive reader, so, so it was really fun talking to you, and I really appreciate all your questions. Slavic Connection is part of the Texas Podcast Network, the conversations changing the world. Brought to you by the University of Texas at Austin. The opinions expressed in this program represent the views of the hosts and the guests, and not of the University of Texas at Austin. For more information, please visit us online at slavxradio.com. Thank you. 